Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Jim Anderson. We're Patricia Green Sellers in Newburgh. It's December 10th, 2019. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jim. We do appreciate this. Uh, we'll start with the most important question of all, which is why wine? Um, you know, when I started back in the early 90s, it, it was still, you know, just coming out of like being the cottage industry mm-hmm. sort of version of the Oregon mm-hmm. wine industry. And there weren't really jobs. I wasn't necessarily looking to be in the Oregon wine industry. Um, it, through hook and by crook, sort of ended up that way. But, uh, you know, I didn't study for it. I grew up uh, in, in Maine, so, you know, there's no wine industry, obviously, uh, there. Uh, so, you know, I moved out to Oregon uh, because I'd gone to the University of Oregon for a year, my junior year of college, and uh, decided I really liked it. And so I came back out here just to live in Oregon. And I got introduced to the Oregon wine industry the way most people interact with the Oregon wine industry was just by going to wineries. <laughs> um, and I had a variety of different things happen, the, the most significant of which was uh, a friend of mine had a, a, a newspaper on the, that he printed out of Cannon Beach on a monthly basis called The Upper Left Edge. And I started writing a wine column for him. And in doing so, I started to meet uh, some people and I met um, I, I met the people who actually owned what is this winery. Uh, it was originally called Autumn Wind back in 1993. And I met Myron Redford of Amity Vineyards in 1994. And I worked a little bit in the, of Harvest in 93 in the tasting room here at Autumn Wind. And then worked Harvest at Amity in 1994. Um, and so that's was sort of how I got into it. But in neither case was it like, oh, this is like a career, <laughs> like, you know, Autumn Wind paid, I don't remember, probably sort of like minimum wage or something like that uh, for what I did here. And then uh, when I worked harvest, almost the whole harvest in 94 for Myron at Amity, he literally gave me a bottle of wine. Um, that was it. <laughs> so I wasn't expecting like, you know, to have this turn into something because it just didn't seem like it. I mean, there were, there were a handful of wineries, there's probably 75, 80 wineries tops in the whole state, and you know some of those were down in Southern Oregon at that point. So, and you know they were mostly small family operations. There weren't really jobs beyond seasonal kind of things, tasting room uh, stuff. And so uh, it wasn't really a plan. And I happened to meet Patty through uh, a friend of mine, and uh, she had started a winery called Tory Moore in 1993, and I joined her. I, I met her. Um, uh, through a friend, and uh, we ended up hitting it off, and you know, then you got 25 years later. So, as you as you started to learn about wine, write about wine, work in the industry, was there something about it that made you that, that brought you in? Was there something that appealed to you about it? Um, I, I liked, you know, especially uh, you know the harvest of '94 uh, at Amity with uh, mostly with Tad Seastad, who's got his own um, operation. Now, but he was really the winemaker at 
at Amity in, in 94, and it was myself and there was a guy named Jonathan, and I don't remember his last name, he was a stage from Australia, and it was really just the three of us doing Harvest. I, I, in the, the three weeks or so that I was there, I literally saw Myron one time. Um, Myron was just on the road selling wine, mm -hmm. and uh, Tad was, you know, really not supposed to be the winemaker. I think he was getting paid $7.25 an hour. Uh, to be the winemaker for a 10,000 case winery um, in Oregon at that time, and uh, I, I liked the you know the blue collar aspect of it. I grew up fishing, um, lobstering, and so uh, I, I, the sort of hard work aspect of it appealed to me. I liked wine, um, and and so I, I liked working harvest. I liked doing what I did, but uh, you know it wasn't until you know, I started working with Patty that it was happened on some sort of full-time kind of basis. So tell me about that, you mentioned uh, Patty at Tory Moore in the, in the early 90s. So tell me about meeting her and, and sort of hitting it off with her and, and, and the next steps. Yeah, so I met her through a friend who had opened a wine shop uh, and Patty had uh, been, she had started down at Hillcrest um, and uh, she, in 1986 was just working with friends, transitioning from sort of one job career to whatever the next thing was going to be. And she had friends who were working at Hillcrest just picking grapes. And in 1986 harvest, she picked grapes at Hillcrest. And in 1987, she was the winemaker. <laughs> uh, so it was, you know, it was a different time back then. <laughs> but I think I saw like the you know, smartest, most capable person around. And even though she had literally zero experience with any kind of commercial winemaking, um, there was like, you can figure it out, but if anybody else here has even got training. Uh, and so she was, she had bounced around um, after she was finished with Hillcrest and she worked at Harvest at Adelsheim in 1991. And she was doing some consulting work and she got hired really not to be the winemaker and general manager of Tory Moore, but just to like um, consult on some wines that they already had going from the 1992 Harvest, which she advised them against bottling at all. Um, but then uh, she sort of fell into like, well, okay, we're going to go forward with this and uh, started the real Tory Moore operations in um, fall of 1993. And in the spring of 95, uh, she was delivering wine to this wine shop and my friend and, and said, I, you know, I need help. The owners want to make more wine and uh, you already have a, a second job that I do at La Garza, which is you know 150 miles away, and I'm supposed to account for the wine and deliver, you know, sell wine and make the wine. I just don't, you know, I need somebody to to make this go further the way the uh, direction the owners want it to go. And my friend was just like, well, you should at least meet the guy across the street. He's worked harvest for a couple places, and uh, I think you did it off. And so. Uh, I, we eventually, uh, over the course of the next month or so, eventually found a day that fit for both of us in terms of uh, meeting up. And basically, it was sort of, it wasn't necessarily a one question interview. She always sort of referred to it as that. And basically, the question was the owner of this winery is a very, very conservative Republican. Are you going to be able to deal with that? And I was like, that's fine. And so she's like, okay, you seem like you're good. Let's go. And so um, we, sort of had like gave ourselves like a three month like trial to see if we were going to be able to figure it out between the two of us uh, and you know, then we spent the next five years trying to make Tory more work. 
So tell me about that work, tell me about taking Tori Moore from its sort of infancy and, and, and building it up together. Well, I mean, it's so different back then. I mean, uh, Tory Moore was located where Heater Allen is located now, which is on 10th Avenue, dead-ending at the railroad tracks in McMinnville. And it's one thing now, they sort of call it the, you know, there's lots of stuff around that that's really nice. Um, you know, the, the area just below it, mm -hmm. you know, like Fifth Avenue has got bars and shops and walking around capability. But back in 1995, you know, there was the rubber plant across the street and, you know, homeless people on the railroad tracks and that was about it. Like, it was kind of slummy um, in its own endearing sort of way, uh, <laughs> but it was just a different, you know, it was just different than the way things are now. Uh, but, you know, we had good fruit and, uh, you know, Patty was sort of naturally talented and uh, we just were willing to work crazy hours. I mean, the, the 95 harvest, we didn't really have the equipment necessary to deal with the sort of issues that that harvest presented, which was a lot of rot and botrytis um, coming in. And you know, we just literally sorted each bin by hand. There was no sorting line. Um, so sorting a bin of fruit would, you know, a 500 ton, a 500 pound bin of fruit would take hours sometimes. Uh, and uh, we were only making a couple thousand cases of wine. So it, 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 it seems crazy the amount of effort that we put in now. I mean, our, the harvest took, I think, more time in 1995 for us to do, you know, a, a few tons. I mean, 30 tons, something like that, 35 tons. We, we you know, we do 275 here now and it was, it's much easier. <laughs> uh, so uh, you really had to be willing to stick it out in terms of the, the labor that went into it because the equipment was so barren and you know non-existent in some cases uh, for, for the actual production of high quality wine. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I look back on like the unbelievably rudimentary nature of, of things and you know obviously people have been around much longer than I have and have seen far, far worse than, than I experienced, but I mean it was certainly um, you know a bare bones kind of operation, but unfortunately the owner had you know, the old McDaniel Vineyard, which was planted in 1972. So even in 1995, you're talking about like legitimately old vine mm -hmm. kind of stuff, mm -hmm. which would have been, uh, you know, some of the oldest vines in the state of Oregon at the time. And Patty had sort of snooped around and found um, vineyards, which have now turned out to be notable uh, vineyards in the state, White Rose Vineyard, um, Eason Vineyard, which is now part of Irie Vineyard. Um, and a couple other, like Murdo Vineyard, which is uh, mm -hmm. still in operation and has, you know, probably vines that are close to 40 years old at this mm -hmm. point. So she had done a good job sourcing fruit, and so uh, we had the, the the basics of what you needed, which was fruit that you could turn into the, you know, uh, very very high quality wine. And so that was where we began. Really, was having the ability to have a chance at, at making good wine, and then. Um, her and I got along really well, and she was willing to work like a crazy person, and I was willing to do the, the same. And so, um, you know, the harvest that we had, 95, 96, 97, would probably be identified as three of the harder harvests, and that they happened back to back to back, um, wouldn't be necessarily what you'd want to sort of hang your hat on, especially coming off uh, 94, which was, you know, a harvest that in some ways put the Oregon wine industry on the map. Um, but in some ways that might have served us very well because I, I think the wines that we made, um, especially in 1996, were extremely good uh, and 
we got noticed and even though we didn't really have visitors the way we do now and certainly you know weren't shipping wine across the country but uh, you know the, the, there was a small tasting room up uh, on, the, on the vineyard not really at the, the at the winery uh, but we had distributors and we sold wine wholesale and uh, so we were kind of eking out um, you know a, a reasonable you know, we weren't losing too much money. I guess would be uh, the standard. But you know, for you know, even if you start a wine right now, if, you know, the first three, four vintages, you're not exactly putting money in the bank. Um, and, and certainly, by the time we left uh, in 1999, uh, we probably uh, the production was probably close to 6,000 cases. I don't really remember. We didn't um, we vinified the 99 vintage, but we didn't stick around for for bottling it. So I'm not exactly sure how much production there actually was, but there was a lot of wine um, compared to what we had been doing before. And so it showed that things were going in the right direction mm -hmm. that, you know, from 1993, when she made a little over a thousand cases of wine to in, in seven vintages, you know, going up to 6,000 cases, which even in today, by today's standard, we would be above average size winery in the state of Oregon. Half the wineries are less than 5,000 cases. So uh, 20 years ago, we would have been like not entirely a small operation, <laughs> um, so it was it was a good experience because you know we got to work together for five years. Um, we didn't necessarily do it on somebody else's dime. I, I mean, I feel like we by the end they were yeah, I don't remember what the books looked like, but I mean by the end we were probably making at least breaking even, and if not um, verging on you know being in the black and making some money. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, we had done. You know, not something extraordinary. I don't want to say that like it was some, some magical thing. Obviously, other people have survived uh, longer than we had at that point in the Oregon wine industry. But uh, given sort of the crazy kind of uh, beginnings of, of that um, place, which are really, really crazy, um, that it managed to survive, uh, you know, and flourish, and you know, is now up in the hills and um, has been around for. You know, 20, over 25, close to 30 years now. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot to be said for how it began, and so I, I think that um, we set them up for success, and uh, and in turn we got you know to to try out uh, being together on practice, being partners, figuring out um, what we're going to do as a winery, and um, that when we left, um, we had the ability to sort of not only start fresh but start with a story that backed us up, which in the wine business business is important. Mm -hmm. So before we get to that, I'm curious about as you started working together. Tell me about how you and you and Patty sort of defined your roles and, and what what you felt your your job at Tory Moore was. Oh, um, <laughs> Patty was certainly the winemaker. I mean, I wouldn't pretend that it was anything other than that. Um, you know, I was she was five feet tall and you know 120 pounds and I'm six feet tall and 180 pounds uh, back then and so you know I, she did all the thinking and I did a lot of like moving stuff around which was <laughs> fine um, but there was also a lot of translating Patty Green into Donaldson and Donaldson into Patty Green Donaldson the owner of Tory Moore um, they frequently had throwdowns um, on what was going to happen and what we were doing and uh, you know I had to like figure out how to like 
get them to understand each other sometimes. Um, and that's one of the amazing things of how Tori Moore survived the two of them and their sort of explosive uh, kind of relationship. Um, and so we always thought, you know, especially as it became apparent that we weren't going to be part of the long-term future there, that uh, removing, because you know, Patty and I didn't fight like that. I mean, she didn't really, you know, she definitely had a large personality, but she, she wasn't a fighting kind of person. I think that Don brought that out in her a lot. Um, and, and, but, and, but I, I think that, you know, it showed that she cared. Like, you know, she wanted to fight with him because she was fighting for what she thought was the best thing for the winery. And, you know, he was a doctor. He didn't know anything about the wine industry. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure he thought he did, um, but, you know, definitely at that time he really, really, really didn't. Um, so, you know, she was fighting for what she believed was the best thing for the operations of the winery and the sales of the winery and how the winery was going to move forward most efficiently. Um, so, you know, she wasn't fighting him because she, you know, was obstinate. She was fighting him because she was passionate. And um, so I think we both realized that once sort of that barrier was removed, that things could go a lot more smoothly if it was just the two of us and we didn't have to, like, you know, deal with anybody but ourselves, mm -hmm. and um, that you know, definitely proved to be true for <laughs> sure. So, tell me about you. You mentioned you kind of hinted a little bit at what the what the Oregon wine industry looked like at that time. Tell me a little bit about sort of your impressions of it as you started working in it and and the, watching it sort of slowly grow in the 1990s. Well, again, I mean, the the people that you mostly just had like the families um, and there were some you know random people that had gigs but uh, you know for the large majority of it you know there weren't real jobs I mean again you know Tory Moore wouldn't have been one of the bigger wineries in the state but we weren't certainly by the end a small winery but the only two jobs there were myself and Patty uh, and then we would hire a couple of people for harvest and that's sort of the way every place was. And there are a handful of places that were bigger, but there weren't the sort of operations that we have today. Um, and I mean, so many people didn't even know that there was a wine industry out here. I mean, even when Patty and I started uh, Patricia Green Cellars in 2000, I met people you know, in Portland all the time that when I told them I worked at a winery, I assumed that I was up from California. Uh, so you know, that, that's not that long ago. We're talking about 20 years ago at this point. Uh, so back in the 90s, it was much more the Wild West. I mean, it's, it's crazy to think how not long ago that really is in the grand scheme of things. But uh, I mean, everything was done with duct tape and bailing wire and um, hoping that you had some you know, unemployed or semi-employed friends that could, you know, fill in for bottling days and, you know, had a month, that, you know, off from whatever, you know, job that they weren't doing um, and could, you know, could work harvest. I mean, that's, there weren't, like, people, you know, who had gone to school that were looking to, you know, have wine, whether it be in Oregon or somewhere else, be some sort of career. I mean, just, that just was barely the case at all. And so it was... Yeah, you know, you don't. There, just, there were no resources really available. You had to make do with what you had, and um, you probably didn't have the money to get things that you really needed and wanted. And you didn't have money to pay for, you know, other staff other than, 
um, the, the absolute bare minimum. And so you really had to be not only passionate about being making wine, but you had to have an entrepreneurial idea because you know banks weren't interested in the Oregon wine industry. Uh, so you had to at least come close to you know covering your nut because it was uh, you know it, it was just a very different time back then. Um, and so there, you can look back fondly on it as like the uh, those were such great times, you know, because uh, people, uh, you're, I think you're much closer with other people in the industry because um, you had to share so much information and like share equipment and um, you know, work to help each other out where everybody isn't necessarily completely independent of one another, but I, I think there's a lot more just like self-reliance. Mm -hmm. um, you know, wineries are standalone kind of operations. Uh, and you know, you're busy enough with whatever it is that your winery does uh, to, to make it happen that you don't necessarily have time to go down the street to you know, figure out what somebody else is doing and you know, it sort of trade your time and knowledge for you know, their thing that they want to borrow and then later on they'll come over and trade some time and knowledge for whatever it is the thing that you have that they want to borrow. Uh, so it, there's been an element of like, I don't think it's as tight as it used to be. I mean, I, I certainly don't know. As, I probably know more people now than I used to, but I know a way lower percentage of you know the, the operations and, and people within it. Um, and that's so you can look back and be like, oh, you know, the good old days. But uh, you know, honestly, you know, this you know, it's much more of a golden age now. I mean, you know, the wines are better. Um, you know, there's a broader selection of really great wines. Um, as, you know, as much as pricing has gone up, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I, I think that you know, if you just looked at basic inflation, Oregon wines probably are barely even at it. You can still get really good wines from Oregon for $25 or less. So, uh, you know, if you went back 20 years and you know, wines were $16, $15, uh, you know, the, the price of good Oregon wine is, is still relatively affordable, I think, um, but uh, it was just a, you know, it was a different time. Um, people on average, as, as, as much as there's young people working for wineries now that are uh, motivated and you know, looking to become winemakers at some point in the future, whether um, you know, the winery that they're with or starting their own thing, um, I think overall it was a, a younger uh, industry. I mean, I think there was a way more partying um, than there is now. Uh, you know, uh, people, it was, I don't know, maybe it was more fun um, and less of a business. Uh, you know, it's, you sort of have to be, you know, more stand up and um, be serious, uh, <laughs> you know, for a, a variety of different reasons. And back then it was, uh, you know, a little bit more casual and a little bit crazier uh, and so you know it's fun to look back on it but it's kind of like looking back on your days in college like you know that was fun but you know i def probably wouldn't want to do that right now <laughs> so tell me about uh your decision to to leave Troy Moore to, to start this place what what what, what initiated that and, and how what was your plan at, this, at the outset what, what was the plan for the future Oh, they had gotten very tired of, of, of Patty and I at Tori Moore. Whether I, they were tired of her, they were tired of me. Um, they 
changed the locks one day um, without telling us and then came down and gave us the keys anyway um, <laughs> and, and claimed that uh, there had been a break-in um, and so that's why they changed the locks but they'd also uh, toward the end of the 99 harvest hired a consulting winemaker um, uh, to help Patty, uh, a guy named Bob McRitchie, and you know, I, I think uh, Bob's moved on not only from Oregon, but I think he's moved on from this plane of existence. Um, but uh, you know, and Bob had been around uh, the Oregon wine industry for uh, for quite a while. But in terms of just like what he knew about wine and what he could bring to a winery, he couldn't have held a candle to Patty. So the idea that they're going to bring him in to t teach her something was you know, it was nonsensical. Uh, so, you know, it was clear that they wanted us to go and we were definitely at the point where, you know, especially when you get locked out of your place where you're, you're supposed to be showing up to work, um, it, we realized it was time for us to, to, to figure out something else. And, you know, and so uh, we had made the decision that we, we thought we could do it on our own. Um, and we had uh, relationships, pretty deep relationships with um, with vineyards, and so we could have access to fruit. And so the only two problems were uh, some financing, because again, banks weren't especially fond of dealing with two young upstart people who didn't have any money of their own, who wanted to start a winery, uh, and then uh, an actual physical place to make wine. The, 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 Carlton Winemaker Studio didn't exist, and I don't even think it was legal to have two wineries under the same roof at that point um, in Oregon. And uh, so we were kind of flying by the seat of our pants in that we had 5,000, you know, three, three to 4,000 cases worth of uh, fruit available to us. Uh, and all these people were sort of assuming that we were going to figure it out and find a home for ourselves. Within and, and you know this is February March of uh, 2000 that within five or six months we were going to have a place to do this and uh, we had spent a lot of time looking at warehouses and th that's what we just assumed was going to happen we'll find some because you know, that's where we had been to Tory Moore that we'll just find some industrial place and mm -hmm. convert it into a winery and in early March of uh, uh, 2000 after looking for about a month very unsuccessfully. Uh, buildings to do something with. Uh, the people, uh, Tom and Wendy Kreutner, who owned Autumn Wind, um, called me up and uh, said that they had heard that, Pat, that we weren't at Tory Moore anymore and they were looking to retire uh, and wanted to know if we were interested in buying the place. Uh, and this was a very large change in plans to going from renting a warehouse where you're going to have some sort of ability to you know, change the nature of that structure of, to suit the purposes of a winery uh, to buying a 52-acre piece of land with what was a 20-acre vineyard on it at the time, um, a house, a winery, a barn, their equipment, all their inventory. Um, you know, it was a much bigger <laughs> uh, situation than we had before, but it was, it was clearly like the best possible situation you could fall into mm -hmm. uh, I mean, in terms of like even in the last 20 years I don't think anything like that has happened <laughs> since um, and so we, we lucked out I mean it's honestly that's there's no other way to put it I, I even though I worked at Autumn Wind um, for 
you know, 12, 18 months, something like that. I didn't have any ongoing relationship with the Kreutners. I didn't see them. I didn't know them. I didn't mm -hmm. have anything to do with them. Um, so that the fact that they even knew that we weren't there, I mean, there wasn't the internet really back then mm -hmm. in 2000. Um, so it was somehow word of mouth and they weren't the most heavily connected people. So I, I don't know where they would have heard it. Uh, and, you know, just for them to, you know, at right at that point decide like they needed a change in their lives right when we needed a change in ours that happened to intersect in the most crazy possible way um, was really serendipitous and so you know, here we are in what is now you know the Ribbon Ridge AVA you know probably the most well-regarded um, you know AVA certainly the um, you know one with the most uh, commonality to the wines given that it's all uh, marine soil here um, and you know only has maybe 30 vineyards in it and eight or nine wineries uh, you know we couldn't have asked for literally if we've like written down like the perfect situation we, it would have been laughable to write down what happened to us I mean it was, it was crazy so tell me about that then the transition into this space and and and, and sort of making it into what it became so when so we said, yeah, we'll come meet with you, and they wanted to do it, you know, sort of on the DL um, because if it didn't work out, they didn't want it to be like, oh, their winery's up for sale. Mm -hmm. um, you know, now I don't know how much, you know, because so many Oregon wineries have sold and you know transitioned from being independent ownership to you know something like Jackson Family um, Estates, you know, buying places. It's not that weird now but back then it was a, a little unusual and, and I think they felt like you know if we're seen as the winer that's for sale we're gonna like our sales are going to mm -hmm. you know potentially take a hit um, and so we're like yeah we'll just do it on the you know we'll, we won't tell anybody and we obviously we had an investor and um, you know they had an attorney we had an attorney uh, you know and so it was a fairly small group of people that you know, knew what was going on and uh, we sort of had this um, transition period built into it uh, while we uh, got a sales agreement together and the sales agreement took multiple iterations um, mostly of them uh, declining their own sales agreement um, that their lawyer had drawn up uh, with us saying yes to every single iteration of the sales agreement and then being like, no, we need to change it, we need to change it. Uh, but Patty and I had taken over the operations of Autumn Wind. And so we were running in um, the spring of 2000, we were running Autumn Wind and bottling their wines and making decisions for them as if we were going to transition. But if it didn't work out, they could still theoretically come back. But when we signed up for this in March, we just assumed like, oh, we'll sort of be like their employees. Like, we'll do the work and they'll just be doing whatever. They, like, literally the day after we signed this agreement, they emptied out the house and were gone. And we don't even know where they went. Um, they were just out. And so we were like, they're definitely, like, we're gonna, this is happening, like, this is very clearly happening, they're not moving back in, they've moved all their, because they lived in the house that was on the mm -hmm. property, mm -hmm. and they emptied it out, there was nothing left, they were out, it's like, so you don't move all your stuff out and, like, move it all back in. <laughs> um, so it was very unusual, especially given that they then took, um, it didn't go, the sale didn't actually happen until July, so it took 
you know, three months of, of going over not a very complicated sales agreement, but eventually it went through and um, July 23rd, uh, 2000, we ended up buying the place. So um, we had to, they had been mostly a, uh, their first vintage was 1987 uh, and from I'd say 87 through probably 96, they were mostly a Mueller Turgau and Riesling operation. They're very small. I think their biggest production was like 3,000 cases. Uh, they made a little bit of Pinot Noir and a little bit of Chardonnay um, and some Pinot Gris and some Sauvignon Blanc. Um, but their their main drivers were uh, Mueller, Turgau, and Riesling, which is, you know, seems insane now, but I mean, that's <laughs> what it was back then. Uh, and then I think in 97, they started to realize that you know, trying to make it on $7 white wine was probably not that great an idea, given your next door neighbor is Beau Frere, who at the time time was along with Druin, probably the two most famous wineries in the state of Oregon, um, both making only Pinot Noir. So they were going through this transition in 97. They planted um, about five acres of Pinot Noir and in 98 they planted another th you know, three acres of Pinot Noir. Uh, they had started grafting over um, some of the whites to Pinot Noir. So they were definitely looking at making this transition from being a winery that catered to a very specific group of people that like mild, slightly sweet white wines to being a, a Pinot Noir winery. And I mean, I've never discussed it with them, but I, I think they realized that this was going to be a, a potential failure, that you know, even if it worked, it was going to be a grind, it was going to be expensive. Um, you know, they'd have to really you know, change Every, I mean, they were like getting, looking at redesigning the label. They were doing lots of different things to like move from who they were to this whole different entity. And that's not an easy thing to do. And I think they're just like, why don't we just take somebody else's money and get out um, and let them do it. Um, so we walked into a per, pretty good situation in terms of like where the vineyard was at. It, um, you know, the, the, the varieties other than there was still uh, a couple acres of Pinot Gris um, here and we, we don't make Pinot Gris. Um, uh, but uh, we had to suffer through that for a couple of years and sold the Pinot Gris that was here to Chenayen for a couple of years until we managed to have enough time to get to that project and graft it over um, the, the Pinot Gris to Pinot Noir in 2000, after the 2002 vintage. Um, but uh, there was probably um, just around 18 acres of Pinot Noir at that time. Uh, there was work that needed to be done. We had to take out some of the sections of vineyard um, for a variety of reasons. We interplanted some of the sections where the rows were really far apart. Uh, we filled out spacing and, and so now the vineyard's at its sort of maximum size, about 30 acres. Um, and until this year it was uh, two acres and change of Sauvignon Blanc and uh, 28 acres or so of Pinot Noir. Uh, we're grafting two acres. Um, you can tell it's the modern times. We were grafting two acres of Pinot Noir over to Chardonnay, um, and uh, but because we've learned 20 years worth of lessons that there's two acres in our vineyard that are much more um, probably attuned to ripening Chardonnay than they are to ripening Pinot Noir. But uh, the what was here was very uh, just like kind of we talked about. It, it wasn't quite as bad as what Tory Moore was like, but it, it, there was definitely situations with you know equipment and vineyard management that were funny um, when you look back on it, how sort of rinky-dink and 
uh, it was and you know what was here and what needed to be done and what they knew about vineyard management back then and what we know about vineyard management now and um, what we knew about the soils. Uh, Tory Moore was uh, almost uniformly um, sourcing fruit from the Dundee Hill, so all volcanic soil. And then we get this vineyard, which is this not only marine soil, but super talky, um, very, very fine, like talcum powder topsoil with a, a subsoil of sandstone. Um, so very, very different type of farming than we had been doing in the Dundee Hills and you know, different type of winemaking in terms of like what happens with the wines right off the bat. Uh, so there was definitely a, a learning period that went on here. Um, and we, the, we had different needs. The, the well, they, their well was only 30 feet deep. Um, so, I, I mean, if you did more than two things with water at the same time, you instantly <laughs> ran out of water. So we're constantly running out of water. Um, in the 2000 harvest, and so we had to, you know, we were drilling a well, and so uh, we we're getting, you know, running power up the side of the hill, and um, we were doing all sorts of things that I would shudder to think about us doing now, and they would be so much easier to do now than, but back then it was just like if you wanted to run power up the hill, like you had to, like, do the trenching and, you know, sort of get everything set up for them to do it. Like, it was, you know, just different times. Um, you know, a lot of the infrastructure type companies that are around didn't deal with wineries in the way that they would now. Um, so uh, there was a lot to be done on a 52 acre piece of land, uh, but it was, you know, again, you couldn't have asked for a better situation. So what was your initial goal when you, when you two opened? Did you have a, a timeline in mind? Did you have a, this is what we're gonna be in mind or did that kind of evolve over the years? Oh, on the hope that our accountant and financial partner don't see this. Um, I, I don't know that there was like any sort of grand plan. I mean, it, we just assumed that we could take what we've been doing at Tory Moore and, and make that go forward. Uh, we ha Again, we had already come sort of loaded with fruit from other vineyard sources. Um, and then this vineyard, you know, was you know, much bigger than any of the, it was lar as large probably as all the other vineyard sources we had combined. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, in our first year, we were probably a five or 6,000 case winery right off the bat, which most wineries don't even do now, let mm -hmm. alone um, mm -hmm. 20 years ago. Uh, and, you know, we, we still had all the, we had all their inventory that we had to sell too. So um, it, it was good in the sense that we had cash flow because even though we were probably selling their inventory at less than we paid for it, uh, we had paid for it by financing it, whereas we were selling it and just getting the cash. Mm -hmm. So um, and, you know, it gave us operating money. Um, we had this one sale. It was like the big like last push on um, the autumn wind stuff. Uh, I think this was probably in the spring of 2001, um, early spring, where you know, we're getting to release maybe um, some white wine. Uh, there was Sauvignon Blanc planted here, and we're probably we're gonna do futures and starting in April or May on our Pinot Noir. So we still had like the last of their inventory, and we just like everything, you know, some of the wines were like $2 a bottle. And we were down there in the winery and you know, just getting set up and getting ready, and we just assumed like some people would show up, and I opened up the door, and there was a line that was like 100 yards long. Um, and I like slammed the door shut. I was just like, we are not in any way prepared for this. Um, and, and people were buying like 20, 30, 40 cases at a time because um, it was so inexpensive. And it was great because we like cleared out all this wine and um, 
we were ready to go with our stuff. So, uh, but in terms of like what is you know Patricia Green Cellars going to be? I mean, if you'd asked, you know, if you told me in 2000 what we're like now, I, you know, it would have been like no way I would have believed that. Um, but I think a lot of people would say, you know, if you look at your winery 20 years ago, would you believe where you are these days? Mm -hmm. So I mean, we've had good fortune and we've worked hard at it. Um, but I, you know, I think we just wanted to make good wine and operate it under the presumption that if we could make good wine at Torrey Moore with sort of the you know seat of the pants kind of equipment that we had and um, down by the rail tr road tracks kind of setting that you know we could you know, if you gave us a place where you know there were views and it was nice and there was an actual winery um, that we could make you know certainly as good a wine um, presumably better wine and that we could just continue to sell it and that we would figure out what direction that took us in so I don't really remember like I'm not big on projections and you know, I just don't believe in that kind of stuff because I feel like as soon as you write it down, it's outdated. Um, but, you know, so I don't remember if we had some sort of five-year plan or something like that, but I think we just assumed we would be able to get good food sources and, um, you know, we, you know, we had Shea and um, Balcom Vineyard, which we still have to this day. Um, we had other uh, vineyards that were either had come with us as well and we, we had the knowledge that we were going to get some fruit in a, a couple of years when some other contracts came up so we just assumed like we'll have really good sets of fruit to work with and we'll make good wine and we'll be able to sell it and you know it's a little bit somewhat naive but you know back then it wasn't far from the truth there were so fewer you know so many fewer wineries um, then than there are now that um, you, you just figured if you were doing the right thing that you were going to be fine mm -hmm. um, and so I think that was sort of the plan. And why the decision to just put her name on the on the winery? Oh uh, that's Tori Moore's fault. Um, uh, you know Tori Moore's got what it says Tori Moore means on the back label that is totally fake. Patty wrote that like she basically made it up um, and the downside of her like making up this little story about what you know Tori Moore means was that then we were both stuck with having to tell that story for the next several years and you just got so tired of telling this fake story about you know Tori Moore um, and you know especially towards the end because Tori is also you know it's a name like there's Tori spelling there's Tori Hunter I mean there's you know <laughs> men and women named Tori um, and so people would call and, and sort of assume that like Tori Moore was somebody's name, and mm -hmm. they would, if they asked her if she was Tori, she just started saying yes um, toward the end. So um, <laughs> she was really, really, really tired of telling the Tori Moore story. So when we left, it was just like, we can't do anything that's that because then we're just going to be sick of our own story right off the bat. And we wanted to, I mean, if, if there was any sort of actual plan in place, we definitely thought of, you know, not, we didn't think of ourselves as like a, a Burgundian domain, um, because I don't like it when people say, oh, we make wines in a Burgundian style. What I mean is that um, our respect for the, the wineries in, from Burgundy and the wines of Burgundy led us to operate, want us to operate like a domain like that. And most of the domains of Burgundy are named after a family. Um, and so uh, you know, it just sort of made sense that, I mean, she was definitely famous you know, by Oregon winery 
Oregon winemaker standards, and um, so it was Patricia Green Seller. I mean, she did the last thing she wanted to call was Patricia Green Seller. I mean, honestly, she didn't, that's not what she was looking for. That's not how she rolled. She was not big on being like the face of the operation in, in that kind of way. Um, but that was really the, the the best and only choice for what to call it. Mm -hmm. So tell me about uh, as you, especially as you as you had kind of developed the Tory Moore and then and what you brought here. Tell me about your your sort of winemaking philosophy and how you sort of complemented and and differed from from Patty's style. Well, uh, when we came here, it became you know we were business partners at that point, uh, and so it was a fairly collaborative operation. I mean, it had to be. We had, a, you know, the vineyard manager and, um, you know, a small crew of people that worked in the vineyards, but in terms of, like, winery day-to-day -day operations, we were, again, like, the only two employees, you know, making wine. Um, we sold and delivered our own wine um, wholesale here in Oregon, and, and then we recruited distributors and worked with them and went on trips and sold wine. So. Uh, we both had to know like the ins and outs of the winemaking because there were times that I was here and she wasn't here, and there were times that she was here and I I wasn't here. Uh, and you know, then during harvest, we would hire like two people, maybe three people, uh, to do harvest with us. And so, the, you know, there would go sometimes days where we barely saw each other because she would be out looking at vineyards and I'd be sort of running the show here. Um, so we had a a, a very sort of psychic relationship in the sense that I kind of knew what she wanted and she could trust me and I knew what she was doing and I could trust her. Uh, and so it, it was a very, very team-oriented kind of concept. So you know, even though that she's passed away uh, in 2017, a couple of years ago, um, you know, the, what we were doing with the wines that evolved from 2000 to 2017, I mean, we've just gotten, you know, I mean, if you don't change over the course of time, like, it's crazy. Like, we had better equipment, we had better fruit, we had older fruit, we had better knowledge of viticulture, we had better knowledge of enology, we had, you know, tasted a million more wines, we had, you know, experience with vineyards, you know, where we're, I've been making fruit instead of two or three years with them, we were up to you know, 15, 20 years with them. So you know, we had evolved our you know, processes over time and I think we were making, you know, the, you know, some of the best wines we were making were you know, now, um, 2015, 2016, 2017, um, you know, were probably three of our best vintages. I don't know if they were our best vintages, but certainly if you look at like, the amount of wine that we're making and on the strength of the, the top end wines, I, I would say we had really evolved. And so even though she's passed away, like what we're doing now isn't any different than what we we're doing before. And yes, we've evolved 18, 19, and I'm um, taking on the challenges of those two vintages, but we would have done that if she was here or, or not. Um, so, uh, we, I mean, everybody thought we were like, like I was Mr. Green or something like that. Um, you know, because we're, we're so tight that way, but we were much more like brother and sister um, in, in a way that, you know, we've been together for half our lives, basically, um, making wine together. So we had developed a relationship where we knew what we wanted to do, and we didn't really have to even talk about it that much. Um, we had very similar palates, and we 
wanted a, a certain type of, of wine and we were willing to go about um, sourcing vineyard sites that allowed us to have different expressions because we don't we didn't want the wines to be about us. The wines are about these special places here in Oregon and so um, we were able to um, source fruit from some of the best vineyards in the state and show off the nature of those places. So we weren't like being hardcore about like, oh, these are this is the winemaking style here because the style is really determined by where the fruit comes from. So in terms of like what the winemaking was like, what it is now, um, her no longer being here, there, that's largely not important. It was the, you know, figuring out how to work together and what we're going to do and just learning on a day-to-day -day basis, sometimes from each other, sometimes from other people, um, sometimes by doing things right, sometimes by doing things wrong, um, and, you know, just getting to the point where we've gotten to. And so, you know, I think it's probably not different than a lot of um, wineries, uh, but, you know, maybe somewhat different in that, um, you, know, you know, we were, we, until she passed away, I think we were probably the longest um, existing winemaking team where, you, you know, there wasn't a husband and wife or, um, you know, relation, you know, family relations of some sort that were just like, you know, straight you know, friends of business partners that have been together for 25 years. Usually if you have you know, a situation where it's not family or marriage that's bonding people together, you know, somebody's going to go on and start their own thing. And you know, there was never that kind of pressure with us uh, because we had a very collaborative kind of operation. So as you were, you mentioned kind of the special places in Oregon and wanting your wine to kind of evoke those special places. So can you tell me, can you describe sort of what you would hope someone would taste in a Patricia Green Cellars bottle of wine? Well, I mean, I, you know, I, once we got to, I don't know, maybe 2010, well, 2012, 2013, I, I think we got to a point where it was less about, you know, just making wine from the vineyards that we had to like really searching out and sourcing the, the best fruit that the state has to offer. And um, we were fortunate that we'd been, you know, had uh, fruit from, we started with Shea Vineyard in 2000 and we went for five vintages with them. We had fruit from Seven Springs Vineyard. Um, we went five vintages with them, um, you know, different, um, reasons led to you know, those relationships not um, going forward. But by 2012, uh, we had a vineyards that we had worked with for a considerable period of time. Um, we started getting fruit from Freedom Hill Vineyard in 2012. Uh, in 2015, we added fruit from Medici Vineyard, um, 17 Highland Vineyard, um, 18 vineyard eight, 2018 Ridgecrest Vineyard. So over the years, we've been able to stockpile um, fruit from some of the most famous heritage vineyards in the state, and that's what really became important to us. I mean, Patty was definitely old school. There's not many people that are older school or older souls than she was, and I, I definitely had that sort of mentality as well. And so having these vineyards that were not only great vineyards, but also part of Oregon's history and had people that were, uh, you know, the Durants planted vineyard, their vineyard in 1973. They still live on the property. They still farm it themselves. The Duches planted Freedom Hill Vineyard in 1982. They still live there. Their son farms it with them now. Um, Hal Medici planted um, that vineyard in 1976 originally. He still lives on that property. Having those kind of um, vineyard sites were 
but became really important to us because not only did we think that we can make the best possible wine from these older vines um, and have fruit from people who really love these places, not just as like it's my vineyard asset, but it's mm -hmm. my home, it's mm -hmm. where I live, uh, uh, and have these be the places that you know, really help start the Oregon wine industry um, became really important to us and, and remains important to us to this day. I mean, that is the focus of uh, this winery. In 2017, 2018, we bottled 27 different Pinot Noirs, each vintage, and they're all about these individual vineyard sites and sometimes blocks within those vineyard sites. And we, I, I think if you come to Patricia Green Cellars and taste, what we want you to taste is not Patricia Green Cellars, it's these individual places. and. We will describe in painstaking detail the geology and um, topography and the you know what we believe to be the concept of terroir for these each individual um, places and and the blocks within these individual places uh, and so we want you to what the takeaway is that uh, you know Pinot Noir from Oregon has the ability to show the character of the individual site you know as you know perhaps as well as any place on earth other than Burgundy um, and if you go about approaching it with that mentality you can bring that out. So we have wines that range from delicate and red fruited and silky to wines that are dark and dense and incredibly structured uh, and it's all based upon what the fruit is telling us, what the land is about, what the flora and the fauna and everything that makes up that vineyard site that's will predetermine what the nature of those wines are like because of where they grow up. So you mentioned losing Patty in, in 2017. Uh, tell me about sort of the aftermath of that for yourself personally and, and if you thought that, that Patricia Green Cellars would, would go on after her. Um, I mean, it's not like you ever think about like the other person dying in your life. Um, I, you know, I've been fortunate that you know, I, I don't have an extended family. The only person who I'd say was really, really close to me you know, was my father who passed away, so I hadn't dealt with it a lot, um, you know, especially for somebody, uh, you know, late 40s, early 50s, uh, to like, have so few people pass away is, you know, pretty unusual, probably maybe fortunate, maybe not. Um, so I didn't have a lot of, you know, resources to go on. I'm like, oh, this is how you deal with, um, you know, losing somebody really close to you from an emotional standpoint, let alone, you know, what do you do with the, the, the business aspect? We haven't really talked about it, but I, I mean, if I had passed away, I'm sure Patty would have had the ability to, to run the place with the people that we have um, without me, and, and much the way I think she probably expected that I could do it without her. Um, probably maybe more difficult from that angle, uh, given that you know, the face of the franchise is gone, but if you look at other not only wineries, but you know, you name the business where the person's name is attached to it, and that person moves on or passes away. Like there have been businesses that have survived and thrived after that, and so you have to just keep going with that. And, and we try to, you know, honor. We have this painting uh, right behind, well, in front of me uh, that had been done years and years ago, uh, and we sort of built this whole tasting room around it. Uh, we did a, you know, a patio memorial bottling, so we try to make sure that people understand that we're honoring her past um, by going forward and having things, but we also make a very concerted and careful uh, effort to ensure that people understand we're not trying to like 
profit off of her um, <laughs> passing. Um, so uh, you know, I, I think that we've done a good job in the you know the couple of years plus uh, of striking that balance that uh, people know that this is you know something that Patty created and that uh, we're going forward and that things are really no different than they would have been if she had been around at this point. I mean, the, the thing that sucks is, you know, she was only 62 uh, and, you know, it's not like we're rolling around in money or anything like that, but, you know, we've gotten to a point where she could have done, you know, less uh, in terms of, like, being here on a, like, day-to-day -day basis, working on a concrete floor, doing, um, you know, the hard work that you know, winery this size involves to being, you know, a little bit more like in your 60s and getting to, you know, back down a little bit and sort of enjoy um, the fruits of her many, many years of labor in the Oregon wine industry. So, I mean, that's the worst part of it is that, you know, like when we're just like at the point where, you know, you have, you know, the kind of success a small winery can, can have from a financial perspective, she wasn't necessarily around to, to benefit from that in a, in, a, in a personal kind of way. Mm -hmm. How about for yourself personally and sort of rebalancing yourself after having this kind of yin-yang for, for 25 years? Uh, you know, the, the fortunate thing is that you know, I have a good group of people that work here who um, really put their nose to the grindstone. Uh, our vineyard manager has been here for since 2006. My cellar master has been here since 2007. Um, and uh, director of sales since uh, 2014, and every, everybody stuck around, um, and it was definitely hard for that. That you know, from 2017, I mean, it, it yeah, it's gotten easier, but it, it still comes with its hardships all the time. But you know, the first year was really tough. Um, you know, we had to deal with people not knowing um you know and, and you think like after eight ten months that um, most everybody knows but occasionally you run into somebody and it was clear that they didn't know and so then you'd have to not only um deal with it from their perspective and two things would happen then like they find out patty's dead and they're you know as crushed as people were who found out like the day of but then they also have this like Sort of embarrassed kind of aspect to it that they you know I, you know that they didn't know and, and feel like they want to apologize to you for not knowing about this which you know is crazy I mean you know it's it's not their responsibility obviously uh, but then you have to deal with it again of like you know this emotional upwelling of um, dealing with <coughs> dealing with it yourself but also dealing with it in terms of like providing sort of an emotional assistance to this person that's just found this out. Um, so, the, you know, there was that. We were under construction, both in the winery and um, up here at the house. Uh, and it was it was hard, but uh, um, we've kind of come around the corner on all those things. Um, and uh, we were just fortunate to be in a situation where uh, I, I think we had, people had really good focus on getting through this. Um, we had uh, customers that believed that we could continue to go on and continue to support us, both from uh, people who've been longtime customers who have come here for years and years and years, to uh, our distributors who felt like you know this wasn't going to be you know the end of the operations. Uh, and so I, you know, I'm 
you know, did we know exactly what was going to happen? Certainly there was no way to predict that it was going to continue to be successful. And of course, I'm sure everybody here had sleepless nights about what the future held at that point. Um, and uh, yeah, I think the people here um, are extremely talented people and could easily get other jobs at other wineries uh, uh, should they have wanted them. And uh, I'm sure there would have been easier opportunities had people chosen to go on somewhere else because they didn't want to like sort of fight the fight that was uh, impending. Uh, but people stuck it out, and so. Uh, you know, I'm not going to say that we're better off for it because you know we're not. Um, you know, having Patty here would be great for for any number of reasons. Um, but uh, it's it's no different, I guess, than somebody else dying in your family, or you know, ultimately you have to figure out how to like sally forth and put things in the past. Um, you know, even if there's repercussions, um, you know, on a everyday basis, you have to. You can't let it get to you, you know, all the time after you know, a certain period of time, you've got to like figure out how to you know, make that something that's in your past and um, not something that's always in your present. Mm -hmm. So one year, 2016, Pinot Noirs was a 100-point scorer in Wine Enthusiast. Tell me, tell me about what that, what that meant to you and maybe to the brand, <laughs> if anything. Uh, <laughs> it didn't mean, uh, I mean, it's very nice. Uh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to run it down. We've never been the winery that, like, sought out points. Um, in fact, Patty and I went years uh, without submitting wines, really, to anybody but uh, um, Steve Tanzer and Josh Reynolds um, at, was, at what was the international wine cellar and now is part of Venice.com. Um, part of it was Patty's fear like that would something actually happen. Um, she was already you know, shy of the limelight as it was and certainly didn't want to have to deal with anything like that potentially coming up. I mean, it sounds weird, but like she, that was really not something that um, she wanted. So we did very, very little uh, in terms of active promotion of the winery um, and very almost nothing in terms of submitting wines uh, to, to publications. Uh, as time went on, um, we sort of were convinced, and I convinced her, and you know that we could do a. a more broad um, sampling of stuff, and, and we also had people um, contact us wanting to, to sample the wines, one of whom was Paul Grigat, and Paul's written about Northwest wines for probably longer than anybody, period. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, I've, Patty knew Paul, and I've known Paul for a long time, and he felt like he wasn't, and he, you know, came here and talked to us, and, um, you know, it's not like he rev you know, tasted the wines right here and reviewed them, but you, at least you felt like somebody who was invested and interested. And so um, he was one of the first people that we um, started dealing with in like sort of the, the new era of us submitting wines to other publications. And uh, that's where the 100-point score came from. And um, so it, it, it's nice, I, I think, that you know ultimately some Oregon winery was going to get a 100-point score from some you know, whatever you think of the wine enthusiast or, you know, wine publications in general, some Oregon winery, some Oregon Pinot Noir winery, that is, was going to get um, a 100-point score. I, I believe that it's been done by 
um, uh, what people think of as the Washington winery with uh, Syrah on the east side of the uh, state. Um, Cayuse, I believe, has gotten a 100-point mm -hmm. score. Um, but uh, for a uh, Willamette Valley-based uh, Pinot Noir winery, it hadn't happened, but it was going to happen. Um, you know, pretty much every region's got it at some point, and so uh, it was just a matter of time. And you know, it's it's doesn't it's nice to be first. It doesn't hurt the cause in any way. Um, but it's uh, I don't know. It, it's not something I am super comfortable talking about uh, because you know, if my public all my public statements about points and wine reviewing and stuff like that were actually made, you know, written down somewhere and um, I'd look pretty bad uh, in terms of like being grandiose, grandiose about it. Uh, I think it's nice to talk about it, it's nice to have the recognition, it, it, but for me it's more, uh, again, because that wine was a very small block in this vineyard, again, so that's the vineyard at work. Um, I, you know, what we did with that wine was just nurse it along. Mm -hmm. um, so we had great growing conditions in 2016. It's a great section of the vineyard. We had even in, back in 2000 when this vineyard was sort of in rough shape, um, we identified that as probably the best section of the vineyard. Certainly at that time it was clearly the best section of the vineyard. Um, and to this day remains one of the top sections of, of this vineyard. And um, so it's been bottled on its own. Um, mostly over the, the from 2000 to through 2018, it's probably been bottled 13 or 14 of those vintages. So it's a special place on the hillside. Um, but again, it, it comes down to the 100 point score to me is much more about a recognition of Oregon as a place that can do it. Ribbon Ridge is a place that is a, a very special place for Pinot Noir and that this vineyard and then specifically that section of the vineyard has this upper end level to it that is you know world class uh, mm -hmm. so it's it, it's it's not about myself or about patty <laughs> it's it's about Oregon in this place so um, that yeah that's the what I talk about um, you know it, it's not winemaking it's 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 place did you find that uh, perceptions of you changed of the of the or of the place changed after that. I don't know. I mean, we I mean, people ask us about it, but um, I mean, the people who were already buying that wine were buying it. I mean, we we only we made a very small amount. It's only an acre, maybe an acre and a little bit um, in size. Uh, we'd already sold it before the score came out because we already have a customer list that likes that wine and buys it. So, uh, the, you know, it wasn't anything that we used to, to sell that wine with because it was already gone. Um, so in terms of what our customers are, we don't have a very, I'd say our customer base is a pretty laid back group for the most part. Um, you know, I don't think we have score chasers and, um, you know, type A sort of personalities for the most part. I don't think that's really uh, who comes here on the regular and has been buying our wines for a long time. Um, so you know, the, the, I think the people that are our core are people who really like our wines, like Patty, like me, like the story behind the place, like what we've done with it over the years, and that's where our bread and butter is. And so, like out in the national world, 
where you know people don't you, know, you don't have as tight a relationship uh, with with people locally. Um, yeah, it, it doesn't hurt to be able to like have that as something that people at least know about, even if they have no really idea who you are, what those wines are, or, you know, specifically if you've never had any vintage of that particular uh, bottling. The idea that like you bring some sort of credibility to the table just because of, of that is 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 fine. Like um, you know, it, it's making one, one, uh, selling wine is, is not easy. <laughs> um, there's a lot more wine than there used to be in the world. There's a lot more good wine than there used to be in the world. Um, there's a lot more Oregon wineries. Um, there's a lot more Pinot Noir made from all over the planet. And so, uh, you know, how do you differentiate yourself in Dayton, Ohio um, from, you know, one of the other Oregon wineries, California wineries, Burgundian wineries, New Zealand wineries, Australian wineries making Pinot Noir. Uh, so having something that you know somebody doesn't really know who you are to, that can they can latch onto and grasp from um, an intellectual perspective is helpful. So you talked earlier about uh, how you, you the, the sign of the times, taking out some Pinot Noir and putting in some Chardonnay here. Uh, tell me about. Where Patricia Green Cellars is now, and, and, and what you see as you look as you look into the future. Now that you've kind of got your, your feet back under you, um, we're like I said before. It's about heritage, vineyards, old vines, um, the best places that we can amass, um, and just in this vineyard, uh, we had decided that uh, there was this one block that um, just over we had patty and i had planted it in 2000 and it was always good but like never sort of rose to the certainly the, the highest highs of other blocks in the vineyard but it never even got to like the middle highs of of some of those like the you know the good solid blocks in the vineyard it was usually stuff that went into not even our estate bottling but into our willamette valley bottling um and then uh you know I, I, I think agriculture is slow and sometimes sections of vineyards take longer to come around and so like if you're just making decisions like every three or five years about something then you probably haven't waited long enough and so you know we waited you know our know, first um, crop of that was probably 2003 and so in 2018 um, we did an experiment where we uh, divided the block in half and uh, the upper part of the block was clearly superior in terms of like the, the wine that came off of it and you know everything was you know, we tried to keep it as uh, you know commonality between the the two blocks in terms of like we picked it all on the same day like we didn't do anything different from one block to the next uh, and our premise going in was that the, the top of the block was going to be very good and the bottom of the block was going to be less good and that that, that was the case and um, so uh, we had started we, t we took a long time off from making Chardonnay because frankly we were bad at it. Um, Patty used to call it Pardonnay as in pardon me there's this white wine here um, and I was always like it's probably not a good idea to approach making something if your idea is that you're going to call it Pardonnay. Um, <laughs> And so we stopped in 2009, um, and from 2009 through 2014, we didn't produce Chardonnay. 
And exactly in that time period, um, we saw people starting to make really good Chardonnay. In fact, the vineyard we were getting fruit from, a vineyard called Four Winds Vineyard uh, out on Baker Creek Road and the McMinnville AVA, uh, we were kind of blaming for our failings on of Chardonnay that oh, it's just not a good site. Like it's just, you know, there, there's parts of the vineyard that produce good Pinot Noir, but it's just not a good site for, for Chardonnay. And also, I believe it was Wente clone that, you know, it's just Wente clone and it's, you know, the coast range, it's just, you know, it's California clone. It's just like, you know, it's just, it's not us, it's that fruit. Um, and so we, we, Kept buying the Pinot Noir, but we and we told the, the owner John Steinhardt that we would help him, you know, find a you know, home for the, the fruit that we weren't taking. And um, Tyson Crowley was a Crowley uh, winery uh, was looking for some Chardonnay, and so we, we hooked him up with with John. And uh, in 2009, Tyson made a really great bottle of wine from. Merwin's Vineyards, and so it was very clear. It was just like, wow. I mean, it's hard because it's just like, wow, we sucked. And he he made like something that's like five times better than anything we made from there. Um, and so you have to like look in the mirror and just be like, you blew it for you know a decade um, and never got it right once. And he in one try like produced some good stuff. And so uh, it wasn't until you know, and then you know Tyson and you've got you know. Ken from Walter Scott, and you, know, you already had John Paul of Cameron, and Marcus Goodfellow, and um, you know, I could go on and on and on. You could name several more people that you know, started making really good Chardonnay, sort of in that five or six year period. Uh, and it's tough to like be like, wow, we made crappy Chardonnay, and now we don't even make Chardonnay, and all these people that we consider, you know, colleagues and cohorts and friends are making good Chardonnay. And so when we got a chance at um, some fruit from Durant Vineyard, uh, with some vine age to it, of uh, vines planted back in the early 1990s, that maybe could go around and like basically steal all my friends' ideas about um, more modern approach to, to Chardonnay uh, production than we had. And so in 2015, we started making a little bit of Chardonnay from Durant Vineyard, and we still make a little bit of Chardonnay from Durant Vineyard, uh, but we're confident enough that what we do has translated into much better Chardonnay than we were making before, uh, so that we couldn't actually lose two acres uh, of what would be, you know, the, you know, the least productive block in terms of quality um, and, you know, actual return mm -hmm. on um, your investment in terms of that land being uh, planted. Uh, and moving it over to Chardonnay and that you can do something interesting with it. And there's not a lot of Chardonnay planted here in Ribbon Ridge. Um, uh, so it, it, it's a little bit of a unique phenomenon. Most of Ribbon Ridge is obviously Pinot Noir. I mean, most AVA, AVAs in the Northern Willamette Valley are obviously mostly Pinot Noir, but I think uh, Ribbon Ridge is especially high um, given its uh, small acreage uh, in Pinot Noir for, for obvious reasons. So. It'll, we're looking forward to it, I think, to be something unique. Um, so uh, you know, it's, a, it's a big turn from the, it won't be Partenay. It's not Partenay. <laughs> Sorry, Patty. Do you have other, do you have other thoughts going forward on, on changes you'll make or size changes? Or are you just gonna kind of keep on keeping on? No, I mean, I think we're uh, roll with what it is that we get. I mean, I'm always looking for the next, you know, 
acre, two acres. Uh, 2019, we got 1978 planting from Chela Mountain Vineyard, which is Dick Rath's, the, the vineyard he um, first planted in the late 1960s. Um, when he moved to Oregon, um, maybe by the 1968, 1978, and unfortunately we don't get the 68 block, which they should sell to us, uh, but we have the 1978 block, uh, so, um, yeah, that's another historical thing that dropped into our lap, and so anytime I can sniff around and find something like that, um, I, I think that's where we excel is with these these older parcels of vineyards. So if um, people are out there and you've got a famous old vineyard, um, give me a call, uh, and because that's what we do. So, uh, but uh, you know, I think we're you know, in terms of. The, where the vineyard is at, there isn't any more vineyard to plant on this property. In terms of where the winery is at, there isn't any more wine that really can be effectively made in that building. I don't have any interest in like going off-site or like contracting out stuff. That's just not who we are and, and don't really have any desire to be. So we're, by Oregon standards, we're a, a quasi-large winery. We're, you know, 15,000 cases or so. so in the grand scheme of things, we're less than, more than half the wineries in Oregon are less than 5,000 cases where, you know, they all would look at us and be like, you're a big winery. Um, but I, I feel like we still run it like a small winery. I still think we run it like a family style operation. Um, the, I mean, it's not a, they can all escape. They're not like, you know, like your family are like beholden and like you can't leave. They can all leave if they want. Um, uh, but uh, it, it's, it's a good group that's very comfortable with each other, and so I, I think that we've got that going forward. That we've got like people who are feel like that they see the, the results of what they do translate into things happening here. We built a tasting room. We've done stuff in the vineyard. We've done um, stuff other built other things on the property. We've added on to the winery. Um, we've gotten equipment. I mean, everybody can see the changes that have happened here. Um, and they're however long they've been here uh, and, and I think that everybody's empowered to be creative and do what it is that they do and nobody's micromanaged about anything uh, and so I think it's a good way to run a business if you get motivated and talented people that you can have um, a, a situation where everybody feels like their work actually does translate into things getting better, things being nicer, things being more interesting um, and really setting out to be as strong a winery as there is from every single perspective that you can think of in the state. And so I think we have, hopefully, people who are going to be interested in staying around for a long time. Um, but I don't know. Uh, it's not, um, you know, it's not Disneyland. Um, it's not Napa. It's not anything like that. I think Oregon's great. I think Oregon's one of the special places in the world. Um, you know, and that, you know, the people who come here, I hope they take away from it that it's not just like, oh, it's pretty and it's got wine in it. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's a unique place in that, you know, because we make wines a place and other wineries invested in making wines to really show off what Oregon is about, that when you come here, if you're coming from Florida or North Carolina or Texas or wherever it is that you're coming from, you get a greater sense of why the wines the way are the way they are because of the places that you see and the places that you go to. And I think or they're not every place in the world is like that. I think there's a handful of places where being there really changes your perception of what those wines are. And I think Oregon's one of those places. So uh, I, again, like you know, domains in Burgundy, like you know, some of them have been 
whatever size they are for generations. Um, you know, the change is subtle and slow um, over over time, and so I, I think that's where hopefully we'd be at is that we just move forward. I don't know, sort of like a shark swimming in the water, like it's slow and things happen, but. Um, ultimately, it's just like a process of you keep going and you don't really stop. Um, but I don't think there's big changes ahead. I think we're at the place where we're comfortable being at, and um, I hope that we're an asset to other Oregon wineries, and I hope other Oregon wineries are an asset to us. I think there's give and take um, in the Oregon wine industry, and um, I hope that we do right for other people and that. Um, you know, the sort of karmic wheel moves in a positive direction uh, and that, uh, you know, it's brought back to us as well. But uh, I'm not, you know, this isn't a winery about fancy things and change. It's about good, honest wines that are from, sourced from the best vineyards in the state. What about as you look at the, at the industry more in general? You talked earlier about some of the changes you've seen from kind of uh, fun party place, casual place, to a bit more business-like. What, what do you see as you, as you look ahead for Oregon wine? What is it going to look like down down the road? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, you, you, if you get to the point where you start reading articles about wine, um, they're they're only sort of to terrify you um, about you know. You know, the people who buy wine are getting older, and when people get older, you know, at some point, even though they have the financial resources to buy wine, they either own enough wine or they're cutting back on drinking or just, you know, um, casting off material stuff to an extent, um, and that this new generation of people um, are, aren't interested in wine or not as interested in wine, um, you know, have financial resources, they're, you know, saddled with college debt, doing different things, you know, they're more into experiential kind of situations. Um, so you, if you read stuff like that, it's just like, oh my God, how is like, things going to survive? But, um, you know, people still listen to Beethoven and Bach and people still go to the Louvre um, and, you know, the, the classics endure. And so, um, you know, and Pinot Noir is that, like people ultimately like if you eat food and drink alcohol, you're eventually going to come to to Pinot Noir probably, and I think that's one of the legs up that we we have is that you can't really successfully grow Pinot Noir in lots of places on Earth. Um, you know, there's other varietals that work well in you know almost any kind of setting um, or more the settings that are. Uh, generally available in terms of the kind of warmer weather that a lot of um, vineyard situations are located in. Um, so having you know Pinot Noir sort of as your calling card is to Oregon's advantage. There's not by there's not a lot of it by the relative standard of um, the wine industry, and the there's. You know, it's, there's a pyramid, um, and you know, there's a bunch of like okay wine at the bottom. And then you start moving up the pyramid, and at the top is like 
the best wines, and there aren't lots of those, and the demand for the, the best Pinot Noirs in the world has always outstripped the supply of it, um, at least for the last 40 years. Uh, and I, I don't think that's going to change. Um, so I think that as long as Oregon doesn't get invested in a race to the bottom, um, which you see a little bit of going on, um, and that the desires for the majority of Oregon wineries to try to produce not the most wine, but the best wine that they possibly can, um, I, I think that the Oregon wine industry will be fine. Um, Oregon's uh, a unique place, and um, in terms of what people want to come and see, you know, if people do want experiences, Oregon has that in so many different ways. Uh, and I, I think we're going to be fine. So if you uh, met someone who wanted to join the Oregon wine industry tomorrow, what would your words of wisdom to them be? <laughs> well, I mean, what do you want to do? Um, uh, if, there's there's room for a lot of people. I mean, not everybody wants to be a winemaker. Um, there's more people here at this winery that sell wine than make wine. Um, so there's room for lots of people with lots of different skill sets uh, other than just making wine. Uh, the, the place where I, th I think that there's never enough people and um, there's always room for somebody smart and invested is in agriculture. Uh, and in America we always think agriculture means not white people. Um, but uh, there's so much to know about agriculture, there's so much to be done, and um, there's so many vineyards that have gone in that there really isn't, a, you know, there aren't enough people to do the work at, from an adequate uh, standpoint. I see it in vineyards all the time where I, you know, I know that they just don't have the, the people power resources. And so, you know, if you're willing to work outside and willing to work with a you know, diverse culture of people, uh, agriculture is probably the most surefire way to always have a job in the, in, in the wine industry, be it in Oregon or pretty much anywhere. Um, that's what I would say, uh, but um, it's not the sexiest part of the job, that is for sure. Uh, it is the back of the house. Um, uh, of the Oregon wine industry, of, of the wine industry in general, but it's where it all starts. Um, and so everybody needs it, and everybody needs skilled people, highly qualified people, um, and you'd be surprised at what it pays. <laughs> it, it, uh, the, my vineyard manager is, does quite well. And anybody who's skilled, mechanically can drive tractor, knows agriculture, you, you can do very, very well. So that would be my suggestion, but you know, people want to make wine and people want to like express their, you know, their passions that way and um, I get it. Uh, you know, I'm fortunate that you know, I ended up in a situation where I get to you know, do what it is that I want to do, but 
Um, for the most part, like winemaking isn't what people think it is from the outside. It's you know it's more of, of a grind, uh, and you know there's a lot of give and take in what happens in your life if you become um, a full-time winemaker for a winery of any notable size. Uh, like you're gonna have some trade-offs. Uh, so it's, it's what you want out of your life. But uh, I think at this point, the Oregon wine industry is big enough that. It offers you know a wide variety of opportunities for a lot of different skill sets, from selling wine to growing vines to making wine to uh, or do that thing just become mechanically inclined. Like uh, believe me, there are not enough people who know how to work on presses, bottling lines, labeling lines, pumps. There's, there's I mean, every single winery is almost dependent upon their own abilities as far as being an electrician, a plumber, um, you know, a, a bottling line expert, uh, and I mean, anybody who's started a business that they that were competent um, could make a ton of money um, fixing other people's equipment. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> but again, not sexy, but back of the house, but uh, it's certainly, you know, you'd, you'd see a lot of different Oregon wineries if you know how to fix everybody's bottling line and labeling line. <laughs> they get lots of phone calls. <laughs> All the questions that I have for you today, is there anything we didn't cover that we should have covered? Anything I didn't ask that I should have asked? <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I think this is you know, good cross-section of what Patricia Green Sellers is and, you know, you know, some talk about Patty. I think you did an interview with Patty. We have one in our archive. Yeah. We were we did not interview her, unfortunately, ourselves, oh, okay. but we do have one in our collection. Okay. So, um, it's too bad she would have been funnier than I was. Um, at least she would have amused herself. She laughed a lot. Um, you could always tell where she was, even though she was really short. You could always find her in a crowd because she was, had that cackle. Um, but, uh, I, I mean, I, I think that, I don't know, I have a hard time like being good, like, oh, I'm not the best like seller of uh, our winery or wines, I think, because it, neither Patty or I had like the, like, oh, we make the best wines, like we're the best winery. Like, we just never viewed it that way. And so, like, we're probably in terms of being like a pitch person for um, the winery, it's, uh, we're, always kind of tongue-tied about it because it's, I don't know I don't enjoy talking about myself that much um, so you know, having a you know, like did you know, cover all the bases I don't know like it's uh, it seemed like a pretty effective like if you want to know something about Patricia Green Sellers I mean this covers it and if you need to know more you can just go to our website and it'll probably give the rest of it so <laughs> I, I, think that's, I think that's about as good as it gets Perfect, then. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time today, sharing yeah. your stories and memories, and, and we'll go ahead and let you off the hook here. Okay. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. 
producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.